Good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me this morning to the book of Ezra? We will conclude chapter 4 this morning. If you're a visitor with us, we've been in Ezra for some months now, beginning with chapter 1 and going verse by verse through this book. After we conclude Ezra, we'll go on to Nehemiah. These were originally considered one book, and so we'll take the entire thought process of the Holy Spirit delivered to these two men, Ezra and Nehemiah, put them together and hear what the Lord has for us in these Old Testament texts. The Lord still speaks through His Word, even the Old Testament. We believe that here at Christ the King, and so we're preaching verse by verse through these Old Testament books as part of our worship and our continuing of worship on Sunday morning. I'll read the text for this morning. It'll be verse 17 and then run through 24 to the end of the chapter. As I read, please remember that these are the words of the Lord. Well, the king sent an answer to Rehum the commander and Shemshai the scribe and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river, greeting. And now the letter that you sent us has been plainly read before me. And I made a decree, and search has been made. And it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem, who ruled over the whole province beyond the river, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore, Make a decree that these men be made to cease, and that this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? Then, when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shemshai the scribe and their associates, They went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them to cease. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And thus far is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. Let's pray. Father, as we do each Sunday morning, We come to you requesting your help. The power of your Holy Spirit is required in this hour. You promised us in your word that he would guide us into all truth. We pray that you would do that this morning. Lord, this morning in addition, I pray a special prayer of blessing on a church which most of its members have had a very difficult week in a number of different ways. And I pray that you would bring peace and assurance, and an abiding joy to us this morning as we read through and study diligently and worship you as we see your truth revealed. It's in Jesus' name that I ask these things. Amen. Amen. Well, church, before we get into the text with some seriousness this morning, I want to make a correction 
about something I said at the beginning of last week's sermon. Moved by the lyrics of the final song that we sang, the lyrics which were, Every vow we've broken and betrayed, you are the faithful one. I felt prompted to quote the words of the Apostle Paul, whom in that moment I actually attributed to John. But in his second letter to Timothy, Paul says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, beloved, one of the core truths of the gospel, which we cling to with much joy, is that in spite of our remaining sin... God is going to see all of His elect children from justification to glorification. And what a joy that is to know and believe. Christ is our strong tower, which we run into again and again for refuge. When you fear your faith may fail, Christ will hold you fast. This is how I have always understood that particular passage in 2 Timothy Last week, however, after the sermon, somebody showed me that there is a different, and now I see a better way to understand and read verse 13 of 2 Timothy chapter 2. Though the assertion I made was an accurate one, and that is that as a fallen people, we are dependent on God's faithfulness to us. Paul's words in this particular passage speak not to God's faithfulness to us, but to His faithfulness to Himself. He is quoting what many believe, uh, Paul that is, is quoting what many believe to be an early Christian hymn, which in its entirety reads like this. This is from verse 11 running through verse 13. If we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we also will reign with Him. If we deny Him, He also will deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. The point that I now see Paul is making comes as two positives and two Negatives. You see that in the text. Those who die with Christ will live with Christ. Those who endure with Christ will reign with Christ. But, and then a contrast is given, those who deny Christ, he will deny. And those who are faithless, now he can't then follow up with a negative because God is not faithless. That's why the hymn finishes, God will remain faithful. But he goes on to say, God will remain faithful to whom? To himself. He will not deny himself. Paul's purpose then is not to comfort the faithless in this particular passage that is done elsewhere. But to warn them that God will deny them if they are faithless because he cannot deny himself. This also happens to fit the context much better. Comfort is offered to those who endure persecutions, but the rest are warned not to walk away from Christ. Jesus says this exact same idea in Matthew 10, 33. Pastor John Piper says that we, as Christians today, have to be careful not to get our theology 
from pop culture ideas. Most of you have probably been into some Christian bookstore and seen motivational calendars. And this is, I'm sure, one of the verses that you saw on a motivational calendar. If you are faithless, he remains faithful. And so every time you fail throughout the day, you think, it's okay, God is faithful. That is not an entirely untrue idea. Our sin and our flesh remains with us and we wrestle with it constantly and we are dependent on God's faithfulness to save us in spite of our remaining failures. But here, we're given a warning passage in 2 Timothy, and we don't want to neuter that warning passage. We don't want to take away the power that would be instilled in people who hear and sing this hymn, don't give up, don't lose the fight, don't deny Christ, don't walk away from Him. Because Jesus said, if you deny me before men, what did He say? I also will denied you before my Father who is in heaven. For those of you who would like to examine this passage just a little bit further, the elders will post a link in the Slack channel this week to a look at the book video where Pastor John Piper does about a 10-minute talk on this passage and why this exegesis of the text fits the context larger and then right in those verses much more precisely. But be encouraged, beloved. The Bible does in many other places teach us that in our weak faith and in our constant failings, God is and will be faithful to save His elect children. We can have hope and assurance and be firmly grounded in that. I did want to make that clarification, though, since I made that comment at the beginning of last week's sermon. Now, let's take a look at the text this morning and where we left off last week. In order to provide some more recent examples of the opposition to building back the city of God, Ezra has handed a copy of a letter written by the local rabble given to King Artaxerxes. Remember, Ezra wants to show those alive in his day, which they were part of maybe a second or third wave of exiles to return, that their struggles are no different than those faced by the original group who returned 80 or so years prior to them in that first wave of returnees. This last letter, this one that he's read in full, as it's read to the congregation, as it's been read to the congregation, it's likely produced some anger or frustration or bitterness or maybe some hopelessness. It's likely that some in that moment were struggling with contentment. Our God can and will handle this innumerable mass of people accusing His children, but in that moment, it was probably hard for some of them to feel that way. And then from his back pocket, so to speak, Ezra pulls out the reply letter from the king. The king sent an answer, it says in verse 17. Now, at this point in the sermon, I, I was going to take a break and give an illustration to kind of make this a little bit more approachable for all of us. And I wrote this on, I think it was Tuesday morning, this illustration. The illustration has to do with traffic accidents. Now, full disclosure, I did not realize that there would have been two by the end of the week in our congregation. But that aside, we have suffered this week. I'm not making this up. 
How many of you had a contentment check this week? <laughs> I think a number of us. Car wrecks are not fun. And regardless of what happens in a traffic accident or how severe it was, they're just terrible. But one of the questions that will ultimately have to be sorted out is, whose fault was it? After the collision of two or more cars, a person can feel fairly disoriented. What just happened? Where did that car come from? Why wasn't he paying better attention? So on and so forth. Eventually, the police come to investigate and get a statement as to what you saw. They'll compile other various accounts along with evidence that they find at the scene and present that to the state, who will then issue a legal judgment which comes along with legal penalties. Now imagine one of those really bad accidents where you aren't even sure how all those cars got into that pile up. And then a week or so later, one of your children joyfully bounds into the living room with the mail in their hand, and there's a letter from the courthouse which says, court documents and summons. As an adult, you feel the weight of what you're holding. Your stomach maybe drops into your legs a little bit. You're afraid to read the letter, but you can't open it fast enough. I've got to know what it says. That's probably how these exiles felt in that moment when Ezra said, and we have the reply letter from the king too. To Rehum the commander and Shimshai the scribe and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river, greetings. And now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me and I made a decree and search has been made and it has been found out that well, wait a sec. Is there going to be an investigation? Is there going to be hearing both sides? Is there going to be a fair trial? Nope. I just got your letter. And you're right. This place is bad news. Here's what's even worse. What the king found out when his research team got back to him was that everything that those men had claimed was grounded in truth. It has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings, that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. Mighty kings have been over Jerusalem, who ruled over the whole province beyond the river, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Boom. There you have it. Accusation. No investigation condemnation. And as if it could be any worse, they weren't lying. What did the king find? As far back as they could reckon, they found usurpations, insurrections, and rebellions. These folks fight and kick and scream and don't listen to nobody. They make Lord of the Flies look like a utopian vacation. At this point, one of the younger exiles, maybe a teenager, probably shouted out, but what about all the good things our ancestors did? And Ezra might have looked up from his copy of the king's letter 
and with patient but sighing eyes, probably said, son, they don't care what good we ever did. And they're right. We were bad, really bad. And then he goes on to read, mighty kings have been over Jerusalem who ruled over the whole province beyond the river to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Now this one might not seem very bad, but it probably hit them like a swarm of yellow jackets. Remember, these Judeans constitute a new exodus. They have been delivered from their captivity in Babylon and have returned to the promised land to establish the rule and reign of Yahweh God, just like their forefathers. Just like their forefathers. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. This was years prior. And they said to Samuel, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. Right, right, Chris. They asked for a king. And God gave them one, even though there were attending curses for their request. God did bless Israel through the king, establishing his people as one of the greatest in the Middle East in those days. Riches and culture and art and worship came out of Jerusalem. And eventually, greatest of all gifts, the king of kings was brought through the line of kings. Jesus Christ, through this Poor request. But what's so bad about that? Well, if we continue with that passage from 1 Samuel chapter 8, God goes on to say, For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they also are doing to you. Now, then, obey their voice. Zing! That's it. You're reading this letter from King Artaxerxes, and he says, oh, and there were kings, too. And they ruled over the whole land. Ah! Again, our sin brought back to us. Why did we ask for a king? God was over us in those days. Why did we want to be like the other nations? Why didn't we choose the Lord our God to continue reigning over us? Now, here our sin is again, right in front of us. We're still suffering for it. I want you to consider a few things at this point, beloved. The enemies of God love to talk about who you were. Have you ever heard the saying, if it bleeds, it leads? That's the game the enemy plays. 
You grew up a coward. You've always been lazy. Passivity just runs in your family, doesn't it? Can you remember a time when you weren't looking at porn? I don't know how you expect God to use you when you play the whore all growing up. It's taken years to get this good at making all your kids feel terrible, hasn't it? Why start saying yes, sir, to him now? You've always talked back. I've spoken for a number of weeks now about our adversary, the slanderer's tactics. But it's those statements that have some basis in truth, in factuality, in the sin of our past that tend to be the most effective. And this is why, beloved, a guilty people are a motivatable people. A guilty people are a motivatable people. How do we get these Jews to stop? We make an accusation that they cannot deny. So they laid out their claims. The king agrees, and the Jews are forced to stop working on this wall. The first wave of exiles gave up altogether working on the temple. We'll come to that next week. They quit entirely. Why? Well, God has delivered them out of Babylon, but Babylon hasn't come out of them. They've come out of Babylon, but Babylon has not come out of them. Is this your story, beloved? You've repented of your sins. You've been forgiven in Christ, but you are still listening to the enemy's accusations. And you've done that for so long that now who you are is who you were. I mentioned several months ago that when the enemy makes these claims against us, there's no sense in denying the ones that he gets right. But like the Shane and Shane song goes, you can't gain salvation by embracing accusation. That's not where it's found. It's found at the cross. Beloved, God has no problem with you feeling the weight of your sin and your desperation, but you can't stop there. There's a sleight of hand in that moment where you embrace the accusation and then suddenly you begin identifying with it. Yes, I am terrible. Yes, I've always been a coward. Yes, I've always talked back. Yes, I've never submitted to him or her or whatever. This is what is so wicked about the victim ideology that the world is pumping these days. Hi, my name is Chris and I am an alcoholic a child abuser, a profane language user, a porn addict. I am that. No, no. If any man be in Christ, he is a what? New creation. New creation. Why? Paul says in Colossians 3.3, 3, for you have died. That's where that stuff is. It's dead. It's in the past. If you were in Christ, it was put on the cross. And your life is what now? Hidden with Christ in God. That is our reality. The Christian's identity is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And in Him, the history of our past is completely washed away. 
Though your sins be like scarlet, Isaiah said, they will be as white as snow. Praise God. Instead of letting our adversary win the identity war, forcing you to stand on the shifting sand of your own failings, continually, beloved, look to the cross. Everything changed at the cross. Now, one other response that we can take as an encouragement for our souls and instructive at this moment is that in moments like these, where these accusations are coming, and especially when there's no time to defend yourself, or it would not be appropriate to do so, you need to leave it in the hand of God. Defensiveness is not the answer. Defensiveness is often not the answer. One of the greatest temptations in these kind of fights is to get defensive. Nuh-uh, you don't know all the facts. Wait just a minute. The Samaritans haven't told the whole story. Yeah, we were bad, but we're being obedient to God now. We're also following the command that Cyrus handed down. Now, did you notice what just happened? In order to fight, they went from the bad things that they used to do to the good things that they're doing now instead of the greatest thing that God did to deliver them. That's where the defense comes from. That's where the defense comes from. There is a right spirit of justice in everyone created in the image of God. Consider the widow's appeal to the judge in Luke 18. Give me justice before my adversary. Give me justice. Give me justice. She asks again and again. There is a right posture for that. But those who make a practice of being on the defensive, always resting rushing to their own justification, never leaving anything in the hands of God, be warned. Because the spirit of self-reliance has sent many people to hell. After a lengthy discourse of the wickedness of the nations toward God's people, the Lord says, Is not all of that laid up in store with me? Is it not sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when there the adversary's foot will slip. For the day of their calamity is at hand. Their doom comes swiftly for here's our peace. Here's our joy. Here's the good news. The Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. That's from Deuteronomy 32, and that should have been in these exiles' mind. The Lord will vindicate his people. He'll have compassion on us. He brought us here. All these bricks laying around, he told us to put them together again and make a wall. He told us to build that temple. Those people long ago, they, they struggled, but it's built. There it is. What's God doing? He's keeping his promises. The instincts of the Christian should be so trained to trust the Father's sovereignty and plans that our reflex to any providence, no matter how small or severe, should be genuine Christian contentment. To look at a hard providence, of which in our church this last week we've mentioned many, and not just believe that God is working everything for our good, but living like this is the case, 
This is the sign of God's Spirit making a mature man or woman in Christ. So, we shouldn't dwell on our past failures. We shouldn't get defensive. Well, then how should we live? I want to come back to this thought at the conclusion of the sermon. But let's read for just a minute verses 21 and 22 and take a look at the king's response and the sovereignty of God. The king goes on to say, Ezra, you can imagine him reading this letter. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease and that this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? It's a pretty straightforward response. He doesn't take time to hear the other side. He doesn't run a background check on the reliability of these officers. You'll remember that Rehum was a Judean commander under Persian control. So he was loyal to the king. Shimshai was one of his scribes. Does this king concern, appear concerned about justice? Or does he appear concerned about territory or taxation? Does Israel have any recourse anyway? Would it matter what the king cared about? Do they have any options at this point? They have no power to remove a king from office. They're essentially helpless as far as man's eye can see. Would it change if they had the ability to vote? I'd wager Darius wouldn't get much support from Abraham's offspring. Now, I'm going to take a risk this morning. And I'm going to say some pretty taboo things. I'm going to talk about your responsibility as a Christian in a republic, in a constitutional republic, where we have the option and ability to vote in support of or against leaders. For some of you, this may be a Sunday morning first. It's not impossible to think that this might make someone angry. Give me a minute to set this up. The first and greatest commandment of secularism is the church and the state must be in every way separate. Thanks to the thorough indoctrination of children through the American public school system, the church for more than 70 years now has caved to this made-up mandate and has actually taught its members to take their Jesus off when they engage in political matters. Back in 2020, my attention, like yours, I'm sure, was turned again and again to the political charades game, which seemed to be a competition for the best kabuki show of all time. It felt like we were living in a novel spawned from a one-night stand between 1984 and Brave New World. Other than the rigged outcome, which I don't consider to even be arguable at this point, the thing that got me unsettled enough to miss some sleep during those long months was the response of the church. Not just the Romans 13 obey the government line, but the fact that churches everywhere were not discipling their people to obey Christ when they went to perform political duties. 
Except they might have said that Trump is a mean, nasty man, so Christians shouldn't vote for him. But oh no, we won't say anything about the Democrat Party. I know several black brothers or sisters who might vote for Democrats. We don't want to unnecessarily divide the church. Christ the King, to bifurcate our walk with Christ at any moment in life for the sake, including, for the sake of the separation of church and state or for the sake of the unity of the church, to take your Jesus off at any moment for whatever reason you can come up with is sinful. It is wrong. How could you say it's sinful, Chris? In the first chapter of Romans, Paul describes the behavior of what he calls ungodly people. What does he say about them? He says they know about God. The knowledge of God has been made plain by God to them because God revealed it in creation. They've got eyeballs in their head. They can see God everywhere. They can see His work. And what did the ungodly do, Paul says? They take all that truth and they suppress it. That's not what Jesus taught us to do. He said, let your light shine before men. He didn't give a list of exceptions after that. Everywhere you go, Jesus goes with you. He is the husband and Lord of his bride, so it matters to God how she, that is the bride, acts in obedience to him when she engages in politics, including voting. And as a minister of Christ's gospel, it is not my job to tell you whom you must vote for, but how to think about politics and voting as a Christian. Jesus said, I want you to go into all the world. I want you to make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then teach them to obey everything I've commanded you, which includes how we think about the world of nations and civilizations and politics and economics and everything. Once Prime Minister of Holland and also a Christian theologian, Abraham Kuyper famously said, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is, not was, not will be, but who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. It's Jesus's. The voting booth belongs to Jesus. Our government, our Clinton city down here, that belongs to Christ. Right now it does. Not will be one day, not has. It does. Right now. It is Jesus's. So in light of this, I want to give you three brief things to consider. Number one, vote in accordance with your prayers. Vote in accordance with your prayers. Paul told Timothy, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions, why? That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. We pray for the people who rule over us in order that they would rule us well, see our good works, and leave us alone. So reduced and limited government is a rule of thumb here. The way that you would pray for these authority figures, vote in accordance with that. 
I would also say, vote in accordance with righteousness. Paul tells the Romans that those who are debased in mind know God's righteous decree. That practicing wicked and sinful things, those people, they deserve to die. But they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now think about that the next time you hit that red button that says vote. Are you giving approval to those who would practice sin and unrighteousness? This should be evidence enough that a Christian could never, it is sinful to do so, knowingly vote for a candidate in favor of legislating wickedness. Any party or candidate that runs for the murder of babies, sodomite marriage, and the transgender nonsense is in sin, and it would be sin to cast a vote for them. To be as frank as I can, the Democratic platform and the Democrat Party is unrighteousness from top to bottom at this point. Just this last week, President Biden called on voters to get him two more Democratic senators while also keeping the House this November. Then he could ensure that Roe v. Wade was codified into law. He actually said so we could make it law again, which it wasn't because it was a Supreme Court decision. But they actually want to do it the right way this time. That is evil. That's not even arguable at this point. Why do people have such trouble with this? Well, if I say this about this person, then I've got to say this about this person. Chris, what if I couldn't vote for a Republican candidate? Well, you can write someone in. And my own personal opinion on this is that not voting for the President of the United States is an option. I think that that is your Christian freedom to do so. I would ask, why aren't we more concerned with local politics anyway? These are the people that have a direct impact on our lives. Let's care about these Clinton elections, the Anderson County votes. Lastly, the third thing I want to say about this is that Christians are still called to submit. You are still called to submit, beloved. Whomever is raised up reflects the people of our nation. And God still calls us as far as we are able to submit to them. Paul says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he reap. Now, we just went through 1 Peter, where we were commanded to sit under to the governing authorities and submit to them, none of which, in, Paul's, or excuse me, in Peter's day or our day, took their seat apart from the will of God. Peter commands this, and God does this either to bless or to curse. But God does what he does through the establishment of rulers always in righteousness. Of course, we must resist tyrants when they command what God forbids or forbid what God commands, but we must do this as Christians, not with the bitterness and hatred of the unbeliever that I spoke about last week. And if you'd like more info on this topic, I preached a series of sermons on submission and resistance um, last fall, and it would have been around the October 10th, 17th, or 24th time of 2021. That's in the archives of the sermons. If you want to go back through the sermons 
in those October sermons in 1 Peter chapter 2, you can look through those and listen. And we went into more detail about this resistance to tyranny idea. These exiles are going to submit. Now, I mentioned that Team Zerubbabel went way too far in submitting. And again, we'll talk about that next week. The group reading the letter from Artaxerxes in our passage today is going to hit the nail on the head. Their response, having looked back 80 or so years and seen how the Israelites failed in that moment, they're going to make the right call. And they're going to continue to fight and fight the right way. We'll see that a little bit later in the book of Ezra. Beloved, though, how have you handled political issues to this point? Do you need to repent of being soft when it comes to politics? Or change your thinking about how Christ is Lord even in this area of our lives? Do so. Even right now, do so. Come to Christ, repent, and believe. And trust that He can help you make even this area of discipleship right before Him. Well... Let's go to the end, concluding our passage this morning. You see in verse 23, the response of the adversaries of Judah. The king said, don't hesitate, and they didn't hesitate. They were lacking zero diligence points in stopping the work of building the city of God. They did it in haste, by force and power. They made them stop working. If anything, it looks like they were going for extra credit. If there's one thing the forces of darkness take seriously, it's trying to turn out the light. We see this today with liberals being more dominionistic than Christians are, taking more ground for their gods and converting more souls to Satan and various forms of idolatry. So now is a good time to stop and ask the question that I asked earlier. How then shall we live. The enemies of God seem to be winning with ease. They accuse the church of Christ. She feels the guilt of sin that no longer remains and forgets her bridegroom's promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. And she sits down and stops working. She quits. She gives up. Beloved, I submit to you that this is exactly why Ezra wrote chapter 4 this way. This is why he's been telling the story of Zerubbabel and the building of the temple 80 years prior. And then he stops and he pulls out these letters and he says, look, guys, here's what we're going through. I got this data right now. Here's our situation. Before I finish this story, let's read this together. My fellow Jews, the first group to return from exile faced opposition. And here is the opposition we are facing today. Now listen and choose what we should do. After he reads the letter from the Samaritans and the king's reply, and all the adults are getting angry or giving up hope or considering whether or not it would be wise to give up, could you imagine if there was a small child in the congregation who raised his hand and said, Priest Ezra, would you please finish the story of Zerubbabel that you mentioned earlier? We want to hear how that story ended. So in verse 24, Ezra goes all the way back to Darius in the first wave, 
only to discover that they quit. The work on the house of God stopped. And as I mentioned before, it would stop for about 15 years. This is the question that is before us today, beloved. Every generation of God's elect exiles, Peter's used the exact same word in chapter 1, has faced opposition. That's primarily what 1 Peter is about. The question is, what are we going to do about it? How then shall we leave? Some things to consider. First, Christians ought to have unwavering belief in God. When facing opposition of any kind, in obedience to the Great Commission, the Christian's posture ought to be a resolved, I will not forsake him. I'm not jumping ship. I'm not waving the white flag. I'm not abandoning this cause. That's exactly what the exiles have to decide. Did not God send us here to build this city? Didn't he return all our treasures and keep us safe on our return journey? Hasn't he always been faithful to keep his promises? Is he really going to give up on us at this point? In Hebrews, we are told, And without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Beloved, we've had a tough week at Christ the King. Last Sunday, we gave our attention to Christian contentment. And over this week, the Lord has offered to show us how that's going. Jeremiah Burroughs said, Christians, how did you enjoy your comfort before? Were the comforts of this world anything to you but a conduit, a pipe that conveyed God's goodness to you? Were they anything other than that? The pipe is cut off, says God. Come to me, the fountain, and drink immediately. Though your comforts are taken away, the sun remains in the same firmament as it ever was. In addition to unwavering belief, let us be in unceasing prayer. What is it that faith does? We just read in Hebrews that it diligently seeks God. Dustin Haddock had a great word for our young men at the Future Men outing about this diligence, about this hardiness, this pursuit of God and being diligent in the things that he gives us to do. We have no record of the first wave of exiles pursuing God's favor after they were told to stop building the temple. They simply gave up. And God had to send them prophets to stir up the people's hearts again to get them to resume. Did not God do the same in America during 2020 when many of the sins of the church were exposed and men of God boldly preached against caving into the powers that be, calling the bride of Christ to stand up and fight? Beloved, if you can't do anything else, if you're in a situation like this, and perhaps one day we will be, where politically, legally speaking, we have no recourse, but what can we do? We can fight in prayer. Did you notice what the king said? He said, take, therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease and that this, city be not be, uh, that this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. Yes, sir. We'll get right on that. God. Make him make a decree. 
It's not up to him. It's not up to him whether or not we get to rebuild the city of God or not. It's up to God. We already know it's his will. We're praying in accordance with that. What mighty power in prayer that we have. We believe, yes, God, you want us to do this. Yes, we're facing some opposition, but Lord, we can bring this prayer before you. Can you imagine one of the people listening to Ezra? He's reading the king's response letter. He comes over as Ezra finishes. He says, Priest Ezra, may I have that? He takes the letter and bowing his head, he raises the letter in the air, just like Hezekiah did in the days when Jerusalem was besieged. And the Assyrians were going to come in and take everything and make these people starve. He puts it up to the Lord and he says, Lord, look what they're saying about you. Don't let them talk this way. What kind of reflection is that going to be on your name, your character, your righteous plan? These little people, these kings that are moving around, they're shaking their fists at God and saying, no, we're going to cast off his cords. Lord, I know you're up there laughing. I know you're laughing. Would you do something about this? Would you do something about this? When we cannot do anything else, beloved, we still have access to the one who can do all things. Lastly, maintain unassailable assurance. And it is not unassailable because of our strength to believe. It is unassailable because it is that sure in Christ. In a psalm that was written about Solomon, hoping that Solomon would be the son of peace, that's what Solomon's name means, it means peace. We hear that this ruler in Psalm 72 would have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. You should read the whole psalm this week. It's full of wonderful promises, most of which, if Solomon received, he only received for a short time. He did not receive them, as the psalm says in verse 5, while the sun endures and as long as the moon for all generations. Now we know on this side of glory that Psalm 72 is actually pointing to Christ and His kingship and His dominion, the true Son of Peace. And all the promises in this song are yes and amen in Jesus Christ alone. And this is why Christ the King is not afraid of being labeled as Christian nationalist. What other kind of nation do we want anyway? More importantly, what kind of nation did Jesus ask us to build? For those of you who have questions about this dominionism stuff, and I've had people ask me questions, quite simply, Christ is the new Adam. That's in Romans 5 if you want to look it up. Jesus is the new and better Adam who fulfilled what Adam failed at and now has the charge to take dominion and is given that charge to his disciples in his great commission, which essentially is Jesus reinstating the cultural mandate given in Genesis 1.26 through the preaching of the gospel and the discipleship of the nations. We want all of Christ for all of life. But lest I get off track, Jesus wins 
this war. Nay, I say last week, he won this war. Now we finish the fights that remain, taking down even the gates of hell in the end. Beloved, no matter how hard your week was, what opposition God allowed Satan to throw in your face, no matter what kind of hot mess this country is going to get in, how we could be legally restrained in the future from building the kingdom of God. Jesus already won. And He didn't bring us this far in the fight to give up on us now. So don't give up on Him. His gift through the bloody cross and the bright resurrection morning that followed is unassailable assurance. That in Christ we will not lose. We will not lose. If you are here today and you have not turned from your sin and bowed the knee to King Jesus, the wrath of God is so strongly against you at present and the fires of hell so prepared for your just reward. Why wait any longer? Cry out to King Jesus today. I'm not asking you as a minister of Christ's gospel to let Christ be Lord of your life. He already is that. But to bow the knee in repentance and faith, acknowledging Him as King. He has never turned any like this away. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank You for Your Word and how it has power through the working of Your Spirit to encourage our souls. And so I pray that as your people, we, every one of us, from the least to the greatest, would be able to go forth this week and find ourselves contented in Christ. That we would believe on him and abide in him throughout our days this week. That we would seek him in prayer, offering our petitions and arguments, just like the writers of Scripture did, laying out their case before you, God and watching you answer in powerful ways. And when we fear that our faith will fail, remembering that we have this unassailable assurance that Christ will hold us fast. Be with us now as we take time to look to you, remembering your sacrifice, the body and the blood, as we take communion as a happy family together. And may Jesus get the glory for all of our activities the rest of this day and in the week to come. And empower your people this week through Jesus Christ to not give up. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.